Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lemise Abdelalti from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Audrey Comstock about her book, Committed to Rights, UN Human Rights Treaties and Legal Paths for Commitment and Compliance. This book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. Many scholars have examined whether human rights treaties affect human rights performance, but what they haven't accounted for is the different paths that countries take when committing to treaties. This book argues that if we pay attention to the various ways that states join treaties, we'll reach different conclusions about the effect of these treaties on compliance. Audrey, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure, of course. I'm currently an assistant professor of political science and human rights at Arizona State University. Um, I got my PhD from Cornell University, and I'm just uh, rolling out as as wrapping up my interim directorship of ASU's Global Human Rights Hub when the director was was on leave, but I'm part of that executive committee. So we have a uh, interdisciplinary global human rights program that we we have here to like bring in law people and political scientists and anthropologists. So um, spend a lot of time having good interdisciplinary conversations on human rights here. That sounds like a very exciting and vibrant community. Um, so let me ask you about uh, the book, uh, about Committed to Rights. How did you come to write this book? Yeah, great question. So this goes back a, a ways when the kernels of ideas got in, of the idea and got into my, my brain, which is I've always sort of been very interested in human rights and law. And when I did a study abroad in China as an undergraduate, I became more interested in human rights law and humanitarian law. And really what commitments meant or didn't mean for states that committed or signed on or ratified to these agreements, especially thinking of of China ratifying a lot of these agreements, but having um, notable violations against women's rights, labor rights, and other other categories of human rights. And on that study abroad trip, I got to meet with different labor activists there and think about how did human rights standards translate to the ground. So that sort of got that original idea or a disjuncture between these commitments and practices in place. And then as I began my more academic pursuits in graduate school, I, of course, was reading a lot of the the foundational works about human rights commitments and international law. And my curiosity got piqued. So I looked into the UN documents about commitment and I just was sort of very surprised what ratification is not the only type of commitment, but these books and the, these articles are really focused on ratification. So 
descriptively, I just started looking at, well, who's doing signing or these other types of commitment? And that, that those kernels of ideas really fueled my dissertation, which focused on the signing ratifying um, dichotomy. And then the book really expanded further onto that to include the other two types, accession and secession. So I guess it started a long time ago with just ideas of interest in law and human rights. And then um, just the descriptive question of here's something going on that hasn't, that I haven't seen sort of pursued in more depth before. And curiosity got me to look at that in a more in-depth way. And that brought me to this book project, which really does, you know, unpack each of these in hopefully a more in-depth way. And the the book is really just a fantastic addition to the literature. And I, I think sort of overturns some of the, the things that we, we commonly think about uh, in the relationship between commitment to human rights treaties and then compliance. Um, so your central argument, as I understand it, is that the type of commitment that states make to human rights treaties shapes how and when they change their human rights behavior. Um, And you focus on four different types of commitment, signature, ratification, accession, and secession. Um, So can, let's begin by talking about these different types of commitment. So what's the difference between signature, ratification, and and these other types of commitment? Yeah, great question. So First of all, I think of commitment as any sort of formal legal agreement that states are making that they're going to adhere to an international agreement treaty in this case. So these four different types are different times and different ways that states have agreed to to commit or adhere to treaties. Um, So the very different one of these four is signature. So it's the only non-binding type of international treaty commitment. And by that, I mean, states are taking this good faith effort to commit. And according to international law, the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, states aren't supposed to to violate after signing international law, but it is non-binding. So there's no legal recourse, either domestically or internationally, for a state after it signs international treaties. But the signature is still a formal type of commitment. So I was really interested in pursuing this because, um, as mentioned, a lot of times political scientists and legal scholars, they're not um, focusing on non-binding commitment because it's not sort of the hard commitment. Uh, There's a lot of criticisms of international law being cheap talk, even when it's binding. So the the non-binding one often has not been included in our considerations of um, expectations for compliance, or why does it matter why the states are actually going to make this move towards signature? So that's the one that's the non-binding, um, unique one. And then the other three, ratification, accession, and secession, all are binding, legally binding. So states, when they when they take that commitment step, are saying, yes, we are going to fully legally adhere to the terms of the treaty. There potentially could be legal recourse um, to the extent that the UN has those mechanisms um, for violations. And ratification is the, the often used as a catch-all in political science and in legal scholarship and sociological scholarship as well, which is a state is legally ad- acknowledging and accepting obligation to be bound to a treaty. But here's where the variation gets sort of more interesting, which I'd argue. So a session is, yes, a state's still legally going to be bound but either that state has not negotiated the treaty, it's been already um, created by other participants, 
or states are going to enter that agreement after the entry into force, which means there might have already been um, 50 or 60 or 70 other states, other countries that have legally agreed to this. So I think of these as sort of states that are late to the commitment game. So either they didn't join on early enough to negotiate or they won't, weren't interested in negotiating the treaty, or they became potentially new states in the international system after its creation, but they weren't involved from the early creation like ratifying states were. And then secession with the last category is sort of the most unique, arguably, and, and less, least frequently um, used type of commitment. But this is when new states on the international system that are replacing old states um, are sort of taking up the prior commitment. So the prime example here is when, uh, after Czechoslovakia dissolved, the then Czech Republic and Slovakia had to decide, what do we do with Czechoslovakia's prior ratifications? Because these are sort of new state identities. They're recognized by the UN and other international organizations as taking on the legal personality that was prior the, the Czechoslovakian legal personality. And each of those, and the Czech Republic or Czechia now, and Slovakia had to decide, go review all of the ratifications that Czechoslovakia um, had done, the hundreds of, hundreds of multilateral and bilateral lateral treaties. And if they did decide to commit, it wasn't ratification because ratification already had happened. Their commitment then would be called secession, which in essence, I argue, is recommitting to the treaty, signaling that there's this new or renewed commitment to a, a treaty. So that's the different category there, where states arguably have very different paths um, approaching all of these different commitment types. So you're right, that's exactly what my argument is, that these different commitment types the context and environments that states are making them in is going to really shape the compliance outcomes. What are they going to do with that treaty after this commitment happens? That's really helpful. And I'm hoping we'll get into the argument in detail. Um, but uh, as you note in the book, you know, there is this large literature that looks at the relationship between commitment and compliance for human rights. And you describe this literature as ratification centric. Uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm hoping we'll get into your argument in more detail. Um, but first, uh, so you note in the book that there's this large literature that looks at the relationship between commitment and compliance for human rights. And you describe that literature as ratification centric. Now, what do you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. So by ratification centric, I'm thinking both empirically and conceptually and descriptively in terms of how scholars from you know, social science backgrounds and legal backgrounds are thinking of commitment and compliance. So what I mean here is there's a, a, a large group of quantitative um, analyses for coming out of political science and legal studies and sociology that have looked at you know, when do states commit to this X treaty or how does timing um, of commitment matter for compliance? And in looking through all of these, and obviously a lot of these have made phenomenal contributions. I'm not um, trying to get into, into that, but empirically and conceptually of how they're thinking of commitment, almost every single time it is only coding ratification dichotomously. So either a state ratified something or it didn't. And as I mentioned, with signature being non-binding, the other important part of signature is that it's a first step before ratification can happen. So there are hundreds of country year observations of how we think in quantitative analysis or just cases of these gap times um, of when states have signed but not ratified. And often in 
um, the, the literature, those years just were not counted at all for potential timing of human rights change occurring related to the treaty or as significant um, legal steps towards commitment or as significant accomplishments potentially of NGOs or activists who are pushing for a commitment um, of that as reaching part of their goals. So when I'm talking about ratification centric, I'm seeing that, or I saw that ratification was really used as this benchmark for commitment and a standard sort of timing point or start point of when to measure compliance, which I think, um, and I think there are a number of reasons it's understandable. Again, it is the legally binding, it is one of the legally binding ones. And I think, um, as I mentioned, political science, I think, is more interested in really hard binding law as potentially making contributions. And a lot of legal studies hasn't been, at least in the past, as interested in the process and context of when these actions are occurring. So it's sort of in this gray zone, um, I think, these commitment actions beyond ratification were that got overlooked by political scientists and legal scholars, which left ratification as this big action that a lot of people focused on. And this book still includes ratification in the analyses. I don't think we should get rid of that as an important commitment type or, or marker, but I think we have to broaden our view of what commitment means, especially formal types when they are. There's so much effort that's put into states reaching all of these commitment points that, that we need to take those into account as well when we study commitment and compliance and all of these socio-legal questions related to the UN and other international organizations. It's such a compelling argument, and I think that that's the reason why the, the book makes uh, such an important contribution. So digging into um, your uh, theory in your argument. Um, can you tell us, so you, you've described these four different types of commitment for us. And you've argued that sort of our research on human rights needs to continue looking at ratification, but also thinking think about these uh, other types of commitment as well. So what are your theoretical expectations for these different types of commitment? Yeah, great question. So I try to look deeper than just the actions alone and think about the mechanisms or, or the theoretical processes behind them. So with, with Signature, I really think um, it, it can have importance and traction for a couple of reasons. When there's a huge um, swath of literature on human rights and international norms that, that really argues that international norms, which are non-binding, right, their expectations, set of standards, um, can compel state actors and other actors through different mechanisms to change their human rights practices. And I think part of that we see is, 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 is going with signature as well, because um, this is non-binding, as we mentioned, but it can be used by NGOs. It can be mobilized around. Um, there's a, this has been discussed a lot with ratification as legal mobilization around ratification of human rights treaties. But NGOs, I argue, can do that similarly with signature because once states sign the treaty, um, NGOs within those countries or those states can point to those legal standards and try to hold states accountable as well. Um, I also point out this, this dichotomy or distinction in the signature chapter about legislative approval states and executive approval states. So this is, um, I'm arguing that how a state's domestic institutional structure for ratifying treaties or their approval process 
is, is structured, how onerous it is, can really affect you know, how significant can signature be? And the, the classic example here is the United States. So in the United States, two-thirds of Congress has to vote in support of ratifying a treaty before it moves forward. That's a very, very high threshold for a lot of treaties to, to reach or surpass, especially human rights treaties. When in a lot of um, states' parliaments or legislatures, there's been hostility throughout time, different waves of hostility, especially towards international law and human rights treaties. So in states like the United States, and I, I should mention it is much more common to have a system like the United States with this high threshold for ratification than not. So um, I think about two-thirds of, of states within the global system have a process similar to the United States where the legislature has to approve ratification. Um, other countries don't, and it doesn't perfectly a, a, align with democracy or not. For example, the uh, United Kingdom... Canada, New Zealand, um, Australia, a lot of former, com former Commonwealth states, along with other states, have what is the other path towards ratification, which is executive approval, which means that the head of state or his or her their co uh, cabinet can simply say, we're going to ratify this, and they don't have to consult their legislature, they don't have to get two-thirds or any, any percentage of vote. And I argue that with that distinction, the states that are going to face this delay, the legislative approval states like the United States, like the Netherlands, like a, a host of other states, when they are expecting such um, confrontation or delays in their domestic legislature, signing can be a much more appealing option for the executive, because in every single state in the, the global system, signing is a purely executive action. So in the United States example, again, the signature decision is made by the president and is usually enacted, the actual physical signature is done by the secretary of state, again, in the sort of executive branch of the government. There doesn't have to be approval of the legislature or um, the judicial branch or anything like this. This is something that can be moved um, forward on faster. And then once that happens, if a head of state is supportive, then they can enact policy or executive orders to support the treaty being implemented or not. So we see these couple different ways that signature can be um, taken hold of either through NGOs and activism or through a supportive executive um, that doesn't require legal binding commitment action to actually be significant for human rights change. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. 
So moving to your uh, empirical chapters. Um, so your empirical chapters begin with an analysis of signature. And, you know, as, as you noted, most scholars dismiss signing on to treaties as an empty gesture because it's not, you know, signature is not binding. But you push back against that. Uh, can you tell us about some of your evidence and finding um, with, related to this commitment type of signature? Yeah. So with the evidence in this chapter, I, I focused empirically on two of the, the core human rights treaties, the ICCPR, which focuses on civil and political rights, and CEDAW, which focuses on discrimination against women. And I do that to look at one broader treaty that um, encapsulates a lot of different types of human rights and one more specific, um, somewhat newer treaty from the 1980s as compared with the 1960s on women's rights. And in the chapter, I, I've, I, I do quantitative analysis here and I separate out the legislative approval states and executive approval states. And I, I find strong support that states, legislative approval states that sign these treaties are having significant and positive human rights change after signing. So it's what I was expecting here that, you know, if ratification is really hard and onerous and there has to be agreement with a lot of different domestic um, actors or coalitions, then states are going to go sort of an opt for this signature as an important juncture. And, and that's what I find that for these legislative approval states, there is a significant change after signing these treaties. And it's sort of the opposite with the executive approval states. So we're seeing that states that don't rely on um, states that don't rely on getting um, legislative support but can kind of sign when they're ready to or when they're interested to aren't making these significant human rights changes after signature. They're doing it um, right after ratification, which is sort of tying the, the change on the ground to the action where the, the executives have sort of the most power here. So that's what I'm, I'm finding in that chapter. And it holds across both the treaties, the broader ICCPR on civil and political rights, and the Women's Rights Treaty, CEDAW, as well. Now, in this chapter, you also have some um, qualitative analysis. Uh, you look at Nigeria, um, and also the United States and Canada. Can you just tell us briefly about some of that qualitative evidence as well? Yeah, sure. So I looked at these three um, sort of vignettes or smaller cases here to look across different types of, of ratification approval here. So the United States obviously is the, the legislative approval state. Canada is an executive approval state. And Nigeria, I wanted to have here as a case where it's sort of a, a bumpier case here of where um, ratification eventually happened, but NGOs were very um, cognizant of, of the ability to use signature as a mobilizing tool. So in Nigeria, I look at the, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And in this, this example, um, I think this really shows the importance of how NGOs can mobilize. So the CRPD, this Disability Rights Treaty, was signed and eventually ratified, but the, the executive in power was very opposed to this actually being implemented or having any 
um, human rights change on the ground. But a number of disability rights organizations were able to use the signature timing and able to then use the ratification timing to bring in external support and external pressures. If we think back to the Kekinsa King boomerang model, we can see that this is sort of tying in nicely there because legal mobilization and pressure was able to be used just after signature, right? And this isn't something that maybe um, hardcore critics of international law would expect, that something that's non-binding would have the power to sort of compel or shame in this way. But it it did. There were meaningful changes in in small but meaningful ways in Nigeria after NGOs were able to mobilize around signature. Fascinating. Um, So moving on to um, the next commitment type, moving on to accession. So Most scholars treat accession as equivalent to ratification, um, but you argue that being late to a treaty matters. Um, So can can you summarize some of your uh, results there? Yeah, so I think this, I definitely think this distinction is is hugely important. So a couple of junctures here that are important for the accession and ratification differences. One, are states actually participating in negotiations, which I argue is really key here, especially for a contentious area like human rights that has so many different interpretations, um, politically, culturally, religiously, even over time, that if states have a hand in articulating and, and putting codifying into the treaty what the definitions are, what the standards are, that that has a real significance for sort of connection and ownership to the treaty and then expectations for complying after committing to the treaty. And according to typical treaty law, that if a state has not been involved in that negotiation period, then it will accede later to the treaty. And I find even when this isn't written into the requirements in human rights treaties, this is by and large what the practice is. It states if they've negotiated it, they'll be ratifying. If they haven't, they've acceded. So I see that as a really important juncture. And then the other point you highlight, which I think it's fascinating, this all falls within a session, is that if states are sort of later to joining the UN, as many prior colony states were, um, they didn't have the opportunity to ratify early on. They weren't allowed the opportunity to negotiate the treaty. It was the colonizers and the sort of empowered states at the time who created the treaties and sort of the the constraints and definitions. Um, So those later on, um, so the, the states that could have negotiated early but didn't, I see that um, when they acceded, there's this negative relationship. They're not complying with the treaty after that commitment. So they're, they might commit early time-wise, but they weren't invested in the treaty. But states that committed later because they weren't allowed to be part of the UN or weren't allowed to participate with the treaty, they're using that as a commitment type and are actually improving human rights afterwards. So it, we're seeing this real dichotomy here within a session that participation really matters, but the choice to participate um, or not really is connected to, are you opting out and not invested in the treaty early on, or were you just excluded from the global human rights system at that time? So I see that really um, different context here within the accession type, treaty commitment type. And you bring some statistical evidence to, to bear here also. Um, but m- moving on to treaty succession. So um, you know, treaty succession, as, as you've explained, um, is something that's available to, to new states, right? And, and 
as I understand it, you're kind of arguing that new states have something to prove uh, when they participate in, in treaty secession. So what are your findings there? Yeah, um, absolutely. So I do think that new states on the global system are using international human rights law, especially secession, as a way to legitimize themselves on the global stage. So a lot of times this could be after a, a civil war, states are emerging here and new regimes. It could be after a split and other global actors maybe are uncertain about what the intentions of the new states are going to be. So we see um, with the Czech Republic and Slovakia, which I get into a little bit more in the book, that the representatives and diplomats are really using the opportunity to of treaty secession to speak on the floor of the UN, to speak in working groups and say how important they think these commitments are, how it's um, the, the Czech Republic or Slovakia sort of regaining and re-stepping into international diplomacy. So from their diplomatic perspective, this is sort of, we're back, you know, welcome us back and see us in an equalized way and as serious participants within the human rights regime. And I find that states who are seceding to international human rights treaties have significant improvements, statistically significant improvements in human rights practices after that period, which is even more impressive, I would argue, because these states have just undergone regime transitions, potentially civil wars, political upheaval, that there is this still positive change in human rights after treaty commitment. It could be completely understandable that, well, maybe it takes 10 years before we can see any positive change happening here, but that's not what I'm seeing here across the different treaties that I study, that it's it's more immediate than that, that perhaps states that are, are new in the system and approaching this are recognizing sort of this serious signaling mechanism of treaty secession. And they they see the eyes are on them from NGOs, from the UN, from other states, and they really want to take that opportunity seriously through this commitment type. So, uh, you know, as you know, right, these, these questions of commitment to human rights treaties and compliance with human rights obligations, these are issues that are of concern to not just scholars, but also, you know, various different st stakeholders, obviously ordinary citizens, but also international organizations like the UN and various NGOs. Um, so I wanted to ask you about policy implications. So what would you say are the policy implications of this research? Yeah, I think there are a lot of them. One clear one here is increasing participation in treaty making, I find could really have meaningful change in human rights practices on the ground. And I'm not sure what the, the cutoff point is. All 193 members, it would be unrealistic to have all 193 members of the UN to negotiate every single treaty. But if there can be broader inclusion of who's invited or allowed or encouraged to treaty negotiation tables, then that can really broaden the impact of ownership over the treaty and long-term um, compliance, um, You know, the rippling of compliance uh, with human rights treaties in the long term. So one, I think definitely would be from the UN point or standpoint here of a takeaway would be really broaden who is in those negotiation groups because um, the ICCPR, the Civil, and Pol Civil Political Rights Treaty and the Women's Rights Treaty and ones that are from the 60s and 80s, they are smaller groups. They tend to be less than 20 states or so participating in these treaty negotiations. And it didn't make them go any faster. Some of these took 20 years or more to negotiate. So I don't think, um, I think from a policy standpoint, even if it took a little longer to get these treaties finalized, just encouraging that 
um, broader participation in negotiations would be a clear step and way to help improve compliance on the ground. So that would be definitely one to take away from this book that the UN could encourage um, diplomatic wings of different states could encourage um, that they could really, really help, you know, the, the lived experience of people on the ground in terms of human rights. With the, the other ones, I think NGOs can, can use signature. I think that's a big um, policy, policy implications for groups that mobilize, right? There's many examples. The U.S. is, a, of course, a notorious one for not ever having ratified the Children's Rights Treaty or the Women's Rights Treaty or the Economic, Social, Cultural Rights Treaty, a number of these. But NGOs within the United States and other countries that similarly have never ratified but have signed can use these tools, right, still use mobilizing around signature to try to draw domestic pressure and international pressure to get, if not ratification, of getting some type, some version of that treaty implemented. Um, and it's exciting to see some of that happening in the United States. The, the Cities for CEDAW campaign is actually doing that the last decade or so, trying to, to use the signature and the terms of the treaty to mobilize and press, press implementation without ratification. So that's sort of a unique path, but they've definitely um, picked up on that strategy. Thank you, Audrey. Those are, you know, Im- important and also actionable uh, recommendations. Um, now, obviously, we've only skimmed the surface of what's in the book. Is there anything we haven't covered that you think is important for listeners to know? Yeah, I think I go into this project in the study of most human rights things, trying to be very optimistic about human rights change potential and international laws potential to change things. And I think um, a lot of critics of the field of international law or of of thinking that commitment action can matter will will think, well, how can these steps matter any more than you know previous works have found that they have? And I think one thing I want to point out is that. The analyses that I do in this book, I compare them in each chapter against ratification. And what I find here is when you do this comparison against ratification, which as we talked about, a lot of um, former studies have only used ratification. Ratification might be not significant in these models or negative, but when you're including sort of this more nuanced view of these other commitment types, that's where you see this positive change happening. So I think a lot of skepticism might have stemmed from just overlooking these other commitment types. So I'd encourage, I'd encourage the skeptics and critics to think beyond ratification because there is some positive change happening across you know, global human rights commitment, but we're just sort of missing that, that time period by not looking earlier at signature or not looking at this um, you know, the, the nuance with, with, with participation timing with, with a session or secession. So I'd... I'd, I'd, I'd recommend, I'd hope some critics would look at some different timings here of, of commitment and compliance, and maybe, maybe they'll be a little less skeptical. Maybe my optimism can rub off on them a little bit if they look, look at that book, book part. <laughs> I'm I'm really glad you added that. And I personally would think that this book should certainly be, um, you know, essential reading for any any scholar uh, of human rights, scholars of international law more generally. And of course, people who are just interested in uh, state behavior, right, and violations uh, of treaty commitments um, and compliance with treaty commitments as well. Audrey, we've taken up a lot of your time. So uh, I'm going to ask you one final question, which is what are you working on now? 
Yeah, thanks. Um, so I'm still working on some pieces related to the book, so getting deeper into negotiations of some treaties. Um, I'm looking at uh, negotiation of the Children's Rights Convention, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which I think is just really fascinating because there was such widespread support early on for that treaty. Um, and then it sort of trickled away, and we see a lot of... Um, a lot of cases where you know human, children's rights are being violated now. And in terms of negotiations, I think it's really fascinating because it was negotiated concurrently with the Convention Against Torture and some of the negotiators, it was just down the hall from the negotiations that are going on. So I'm really interested in what were the sort of issue linkages, what were the politics involved in, in negotiating these related but very different topical treaties at the time. Um, and then my, my next project, which is not related to treaties at all, but is it's looking at um, sexual exploitation and abuse that's perpetuated by UN peacekeepers on the ground. So I'm still very much interested in sort of international law and accountability, but shifting sort of the level here of it's within the UN, but thinking more of how does law and rule of law unfold on the ground here? How can treaties be connected in here when there, there's sort of a lot of impunity, there's a lot of agreements that states are not going to be held accountable if they send peacekeepers to help in these missions. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about that project and I've, I've conducted some analyses and I'm going to be doing some, some interviews this summer, hopefully in Geneva on that. Um, but excited about, about, about the different ways that law and human rights still are, are relevant across different issue topics and across many different levels of analyses too. Those sound like great projects, Audrey. Um, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. The book is Audrey Comstock's Committed to Rights, UN Human Rights Treaties and Legal Paths for Commitment and Compliance, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. Thank you for listening.